Looking good. The landing craft touched down on Mars 28 kilometers from the aim point. We're looking at a remarkable landscape. Hi, Lynn Gallagher here, and today on Earshot, you're going to meet my favourite Martian. My name's Diane McGrath. I'm a Mars One astronaut candidate and also PhD researcher on food wastes. Mars One is a worldwide space program that plans to land humans on Mars in the next 14 years. The idea is to set up a colony. It's the brainchild of a Dutch entrepreneur whose business model includes selling the broadcast rights to the final stages of the selection process. And this is what Diane means when she says Hello. she's an astronaut candidate. Hey, Lynn, how are you doing? I was wondering, do you want to meet me down here in the street and you can tell me about food waste? <laughs> okay. And let's check out the wheelie bins. Yeah. Okay, see you soon. Bye. This may seem like an odd way to begin a conversation with a potential astronaut, but Diane's passionate about food waste. We all know the sound of a, uh, a wheelie bin. <laughs> and here we are, you can see wheelie bins, the yellow. This is supposed to be a universal colour. Diane tells me she was born into a momentous period in history, the day before Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, 1969. As a child, I was pretty hooked on a lot of science fiction. I think that's how I delved into elements of space as a kid, was through the art. And so I, I never thought it wasn't possible to go to space. As a kid, that's kind of what the future looked like because I read about it, I saw it in movies, the cartoons, you know, everything from Space Ghost to Josie and the Pussycats and Afri in Outer Space. And all David Bowie. <laughs> David Bowie, <laughs> indeed. I mean, Dad took me to go see the first Star Wars movie when I was seven. Who didn't want to be in one of those land speed things that, you know, Luke Skywalker was in? So this was a part of my childhood growing up, and so, yeah, I, I sort of imagined it would be part of our future. As you will remember from our last episode, Mark Time, star detective of the Circumsolar Federation and his rocky jacket sidekick Bob Bunny, has been taken as prisoners to the subterranean ice caverns on Jupiter, where the warlord, Prince Acturus, keeps his court and consul. Let's join them. Ready? Here we go through Time Warp 2! Diane McGrath has just taken a big step towards landing on the red planet Mars. She has been shortlisted from more than 200,000 applicants around the world. This is a one-way ticket. She won't be coming back. I know. <laughs> Diane, a very big That's right. You. Thank you Diane's not coming back. Good morning, everyone. But first, she has to make it through the final selection process. The plan is to send four astronauts to Mars every 26 months, starting in 2031. Sad, weary women, their children stumbling in the street with tears, their men bitter and angry, the rich rubbing shoulders with beggars and outcasts. Dogs snarled and whined, the horses' bits were covered with foam, and here and there were wounded soldiers, as helpless as the rest. This description of helpless refugees comes from War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Written in 1898, it's the story of a nasty Martian invasion. The Martians come to Earth because their own planet can no longer sustain them. A situation that now looks to have been reversed. Or that's how science fiction fantasy writer, critic and academic Janine Webb sees it. There are two really important things about War of the Worlds for this exploration. The first is that it's about colonisation. Wells 
proposition is that the Martians, who are an advanced civilization, have exhausted the potential of their own planet. They're running out of resources, so they decide to colonise Earth. The second thing about that is that Wells very explicitly is coming in from the base of what happened to the Tasmanian Aboriginals when white British settlers turned up. So you have this race that appears with incredibly superior technology who then proceed to wipe out the Indigenous species. And right at the beginning of War of the Worlds, he actually says, are we such apostles of mercy to complain if the Martians war in the same spirit? And the plight of the Tasmanian Aboriginals was very much in the public eye at the end of the 19th century. So Wells is picking up on those two things. So you've got two things happening. You've got colonisation and the idea of the methodology for colonisation that's happening. So what's happening in the Wells story is being absolutely reversed at the moment. We are the invading species. Yes, that's right. We are we're running out of resources here. We're killing our own planet. So we're looking to colonise somewhere else. The question is, how are we going to do it? And what are the ethical implications of doing that? I think that um, it was uh, Stephen Hawking who put this beautifully in a recent interview when he said the tragedy of this is that we have the technology to destroy this planet, but not the technology to leave it. Although we almost do. Americans will head back to the moon as part of an ambitious plan to eventually explore Mars and beyond. The aim is to send two unmanned cargo flights to Mars in 2022 and another four in 2024. Imagine flying from Sydney to London in less than an hour in a rocket ship. Well, that's part of the vision presented by SpaceX owner Elon Musk at an international conference in Adelaide. And on February the 6th, 2018, the Falcon Heavy was launched. On that day, it was the most powerful rocket in the world by a factor of two. The rocket was carrying a payload that included a red sports car and a mannequin wearing a space suit in the driver's seat. The car radio is set to play David Bowie's classic hit, Space Oddity, on a loop. If he was still alive, David Bowie would be probably pleased that his song's in orbit. Something happened on the day but there is rather a lot of space junk out there now, and Bowie was an environmentalist. He was one of the artists who called for even stronger protocols at the Paris Climate Change Conference, and one of the reasons Diane is a Bowie fan. I've lived for a week eating only food waste. That includes drinks, except water. Everything else, completely, 100% food I'd collected off other people's plates. Um, cafes, pubs, food courts, you name it. Uh, coffee as well, like I know where to get the best coffee. Um, and many people when they go for coffee, a lot of people don't finish it. They'll leave a few sips down the bottom. I'll have that last sip. This project was part of Diane's PhD. She wants her journey to Mars not to be an escape from the Earth, but a research project that makes Earth better. And she wants to do better personally. As a 48-year-old woman, I have a fitness age of 20. Diane meditates every day. And how can you be the best you you can be for something that you have no clue about what it'll look like? She doesn't own a car, a house,
house or a single stick of furniture. She survives by house sitting. Her Twitter handles at light and portable. Passing 31 seconds, still looking good. Good engine control. Good chamber pressure in all three boosters in the full power mode. The not coming back is the thing that drives people berserk when I tell them about Mars <laughs> One. They cannot get their head around how you live your life here on Earth and all the time imagine not coming back. Mm. I, I don't see it conceptually much different to going to live in another country. The only difference is I'm not going to be able to come back and visit. I'd still be able to have communication via email, um, record a video message and send it from Earth to Mars. So I'd still be able to tweet, <laughs> listen, to, listen to great podcasts, all those sorts of things. Um, just wouldn't be able to do it live. It sounds really horrible. <laughs> so how did... How did um, your partner take it mm. what was the conversation like um so when I, I was already shortlisted when um I started dating my my current partner and we I remember sitting down having a coffee together and um at our first kind of like coffee date and I thought okay I need to give this person the option about whether they want to invest in this relationship because if I'm potentially leaving the planet in 14 years, then they need to be able to choose whether they want to be a part of this journey. Uh, and so I, I mentioned early on in that after a couple of copies, oh, yeah, what do you do for a living, la, la, la kind of stuff. Um, I then moved to, well, yeah, this random thing. <laughs> I've shortlisted for a Mars one. And then I explained what it was. And she, um, she said that, I guess her response... I thought it was either going to go one of three ways. I thought it was either going to be, mm, okay, weirdo, <laughs> this is not going any further, um, fangirl, like, oh, my God, tell me more, tell me more, or, oh, that's really interesting, tell me a bit, but, okay, who do you back from the footy? Uh, and thank goodness it was, that, <laughs> it was that answer. I thought, okay, that's a great sign. This is someone who's interested in me as a person, and that's great. That's just a part of your life but doesn't define who you are. If something goes wrong, there's going to be a nasty way to die. It's going to be claustrophobic. It's going to be... <laughs> this is science fiction writer Jack Dan. He's best known for his work, The Memory Cathedral. And he's sitting with me and fellow writer Janine Webb in a parallel universe. Being multiplanetary is just too ordinary. It's going to be awful. I mean, that makes it, for many people, that's more interesting. and. It's exciting enough to take the chance, but I guess my question is, why do you have to swear fealty to the idea that you can never come back? Because it's cheaper. Okay, no, but if, look, if I'm there for 20 years, would I be 118 or whatever, and I decide, you know, this was great, but this isn't for me. I wanna go home. Too bad. No, but why should it be too bad? Why not? Okay, go home, Jack, goodbye because the rocket isn't coming. And this fear of being unhappily stuck on Mars and starving to death is what drives Andy Weir's novel, The Martian. 
Unfortunately, during the evacuation, astronaut Mark Watt was struck by debris. The film version of the book captures this beautifully. After all, the first person to walk on Mars could easily be the first person to die there. Even so, some fiction is just that. You know, there is always that balance of what is scientific fact. And, you know, there are elements of that movie that's like, oh, that's pretty bang on. But there are other elements of that movie. It's like that scene early on in the movie where um, Mark Watney was impaled by that antenna. It's like, that's never going to happen. It, yes, there are extraordinary windstorms on Mars and the speed of the wind is like our cyclones here on Earth. But there's no force because the, the density of the atmosphere is so thin, there's nothing to push. Oxygen level critical. Unfortunately, the way that I see it is that this is a social reality shtick. Because if you say, oh yeah, well, if we can do it, you can come back. That's not as interesting for people to raise money to get interested at this, at this time, which is one of the reasons I think that turning this into a giant social reality kind of game, uh, I think it's problematical. I think that people might start losing interest. For Diane, the countdown is on. The remaining 100 candidates are going to be cut down to the final 40 later this year, and we'll all get to watch. This next stage of selection is around, do you fit? And so they're bringing all 100 of us together. Um, to the one place, and we're going to go through five days, or up to five days, of, uh, of a selection process that's teamwork stuff. So how well do you work with others? Because in the end, as we talked about before, this is a community, and it's, it's the people that make the difference. Uh, and little things such as who leaves their socks in the lounge room are going to drive people nuts. Who doesn't turn off the light? And who leaves a t toilet seat up? You know, things like that. I reckon the toilet issue is going to be the biggest one. In a confined space, it'll be like, who's got the smelliest poo? <laughs> well, we'll have to go through a whole lot of team challenges during the, each day. So is this reality TV? Not reality TV. Mars One are planning to film it, but for documentary-style series, because reality TV is so contrived, which is... That's not helpful. So I think there's going to be enough tension and, and, uh, and pressure on the, these teams without Mars One needing to do any of that. Um, so they, they plan to film it because there's so much that can be gleaned from this, from how we can perform better in teams about cultural um, diversity, and best, better communication, understanding each other. Um, but filmed and broadcast? Not live. It's going to be, yeah. But it will be sold. That's part of the fundraising? Uh, it will be, but it's not the, the key part. Most of the fun, funding that's come, the millions and millions that have come through, have come through private investment. Despite its critics, and there are many, the Dutch company Mars One is pushing on with its mission. Now listed as a public company on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange, recently releasing blueprints for a Mars surface spacesuit. 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's the captain speaking. And we've been cleared by air traffic control to accelerate to supersonic speed. To do that, I'm going to use the reheats or afterburners once more. We'll be switching them on in pairs this time, so you'll feel just a little gentle nudge as each pair comes into operation. And with them working, we're very quickly supersonic, and we can start our climb. When Diane was born, as she says, the day before Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, the space race was between America and Russia. It was about national pride and the Cold War. Now the space race is most likely not going to be a battle between capitalism and communism, although China does have rockets pointing in the Mars direction. No, the new space race is going to be between public and private enterprise. So, you know, it's really kind of as we imagine, there's first settlers, right? You have the first group arrive, it's a little bit primitive. You land something, you add a few things, and you slowly grow it up. So the first people would be slight primitive, and then if you're the one millionth customer to Mars, uh, it would be a little bit more habitable, we'd hope. This is Brad Tucker, astrophysicist from the Australian National University, and he's been watching the race to the red planet for some time. The leading player is undoubtedly Elon Musk with SpaceX, but there's also Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, Inspiration Mars and Mars One. Then the traditional airline companies like Airbus and Boeing are threatening to enter the field. This as well as arms manufacturers like Lockheed Martin, who've been there for some time and who plan to send humans to Mars via the moon. What will probably happen is that there'll be a combination of these companies in conjunction with NASA that finally make the journey. There's two parts, I think, to Mars. There is who can get there first and therefore bragging rights, which that's great. You know, everyone always likes to say, I was the first person on Mars because that's the person they remember. But then there is the people who actually make it and set it up and dictate the rules and are the big players. And if you have most of the equipment and if you are deciding the direction, and it's a little bit dangerous in some ways because we don't want to turn this into a competition. We don't want just to say, we are the first person to climb Everest or the first person that learned to discover Antarctica. I hope as a society we've learned better than that and can think about this a little bit more clearly and say, what is it we're trying to accomplish and what is the best way forward with minimal risks? And this is where science fiction writers are useful because the problem is no longer a technical one. We are going to Mars. We just have to figure out why. If the point of the mission is science, then robots can and are capable of doing a very good job. But if the point of the mission is finding an alternative to Earth for the survival of our species, then humans have to go. And unfortunately, some of them will be sacrificed. Elon Musk knows this, but isn't volunteering to go himself. I think the first journeys to Mars are going to be really very dangerous. Um, uh, the risk of fatality will be high. Um, there's just no way around it. It would be basically, are you prepared to die? Then if that's okay, then, then, you know, you're a candidate for going. I think there's a fundamental question that goes with this, and it's one that comes up in science fiction a lot, um, and it's the problem of the sacrifice of the individual for the sake of human progress. And, and I think that's, that's problematic, and I think that's inherent in this project that's going on. 
Yeah, this is no longer a thought experiment. We have got people who are going. Right, but you see, I don't know if it's escape. I think this is what we do. I mean, this is what human beings do. I mean, we're explorers. I mean, it's in our DNA. I, I think it's one of the reasons we've survived. And this stuff is out there, which is why I think we made a profound mistake after we landed our, someone on the, our, our people on the moon. Then we thought, well, it's much safer to do it with robots and probably cheap. But that's not what it's... That's, there's no romance there. It's coming in on the back of, of sort of the whole Darwinian evolution thing, and, but also the propaganda that gets sold to people that you're doing this for the greater good. And so there were a lot of ideas that you send out colonists and you're prepared to sacrifice them for the greater good of humanity. And there were lots of stories where people were sent to places like Mars as willing sacrifices, if you like. Now, if they make it, great, they make a fortune. But if they don't, we forget about them and we move on. Is that a problem in the current Mars mission, the Mars One mission? Well, I see it as one of the underlying inherent things that they're not talking about. As you can hear, science fiction writers like Janine Webb and Jack Dan and H.G. Wells do these thought experiments very well. But I'm still not clear whether we're the bad guys or the good guys, or whether the Martians are us. As life returns to normal, the question of another attack from Mars causes universal concern. Is our planet safe, or is this time of peace merely a reprieve? It may be that across the immensity of space, they have learned their lessons and even now await their opportunity. Perhaps the future belongs not to us, but to the Martians. This will be probably entrepreneur capitalism. People working together because they need each other to get such and such done. But I think it's going to be as nasty as anything human beings do when there's lots of money involved. There is a theory that there are lots of species out there that are ignoring us because they don't want us to become an interplanetary species. It may be wrong. It may be not so great ethically. But if we can do it, I think we will. And frankly, I think normatively, I think we should for survival. Yes, but the question still comes back to which humans, from where and why. We're talking about a very uh, specific white moneyed group here. There is still that ethical question about colonisation. Who does it and for what purpose and what right do we have? As long as we're not colonising a planet that already has its, its indigenous creatures... It's, but it's you all, don't know. Well, well that's, but that's exploration. We find out. Oh, hello, little Mars guys. He looked at the autumn sky. Somewhere above, beyond, far off, was the sun. Somewhere it was the month of April on the planet Mars, a yellow month with a blue sky. Somewhere above, the rockets burned down to civilize a beautifully dead planet. The sound of their screaming passage was muffled by this dim, soundproofed world, this ancient autumn world. This is Leonard Nimoy, a.k.a. Dr. Spock, reading Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. It's the romantic view of colonising Mars. In this universe, Mars is a mythic planet onto which all Earth's hopes and fears can be projected. 
It's more like the Mars One project and some elements of NASA. A lot of the research that NASA is doing these days um, in their simulations of, of Mars missions where they lock people away for months on end um, is really exploring the human. How well do we live as a society? How can we live better as a society in a way that we'll be able to thrive? And so building the people is, is critical to that, choosing the right people but then training them appropriately. Uh, and Mars One's concept is about diversity, is to ensure that we have diversity in gender, age and culture. So out of the 100 who are left, we have 50 men and 50 women uh, from 34 different countries around the world. Uh, so really quite extraordinary. And the age diversity goes from, I think the youngest are around 24 and the eldest is about 64. So quite broad. And we think about the fact that the first human mission isn't scheduled to leave till about 2031, to land 2032. So I would be obviously in my early to, to mid-60s, but that's okay. The eldest person who's been to space has been in his 70s. When he came back from spending 12 months on the International Space Station, NASA astronaut Scott Kelly wrote a book called Endurance. It came out last year, and in it he describes the extreme challenges of his long-term mission as being bearable because... Even there, way out in space, he knows he's doing it for Earth. It's hard to explain to people who haven't lived here how much we start to miss nature. In the future, there will be a word for the specific kind of nostalgia we feel for living things. Here on the space station, we all like to listen to recordings of nature. Rainforests, bird calls, wind in the trees... Misha even has a recording of mosquitoes, which I think goes a bit too far. As sterile and lifeless as everything is up here, we do have windows that give us a fantastic view of Earth. It is hard to describe the sense of looking down at the planet. Some parts of the world, especially in Asia, are so blanketed by air pollution that they appear sick, in need of treatment, or at least a chance to heal. The line of our atmosphere on the horizon looks as thin as a contact lens over an eye, and its fragility seems to demand our protection. From space, you don't see borders. And that's one of the things, like, I've, I've been fortunate enough to meet a number of astronauts and, uh, and they're, very, they're very focused when they come back. They have this almost evangelistic aspect around protecting the planet. They don't see borders from space. You, all you see is the world. You see the natural environment. You see ocean. You see land masses. You see giant forests. And fragility. And fragility. Uh, and then there's this great desire to protect that. And if I could be a part of something which inspires people to do that at another scale entirely, I think people forget that. They think, oh, you're going you're gonna to do all this stuff on Mars. Why, why don't you want to stay here and do it on Earth? It's like, well, it'll all be done here first and tested here first and used and proved on this planet and available on this planet before it's even on Mars. So, yeah, we're doing it for Mars, sure, but we'll all have the benefits here on this planet. That's my favourite Martian, Diane McGrath. 
and we all here at RN wish her well for the next round of the selection process. Thanks today to Tim Simons for technical production. You've been with me, Lynn Gallagher, listening to Earshot. Earshot.